Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the Senior Minister here at Christ Church. Today we welcome to the podcast Matthias Roberts. He is a psychotherapist, author of Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, and the host of Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. He holds two master's degrees, one in theology and culture, and one in counseling and psychology from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He also serves on the board of Beloved Arise, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting for the lives of queer youth of faith. Welcome to the podcast, Matthias Roberts. I am really pleased to welcome Matthias Roberts to our Chasing Faith podcast. Uh, Matthias has written a rather an important book in, in many ways, especially for his generation, a book called Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms <laughs> is the postscript on that title. And uh, I've been edified by reading this book. And it seemed to me that Matthias has a particular point of view, a, a way of thinking about our current situation in the world and the a current situation within Christianity in the United States. And I felt a conversation with Matthias would be a, a really useful opportunity for us to challenge our own thinking mm-hmm. about current conditions in the United States, uh, about church, Christianity, and cultural conditions. Mm-hmm. So Matthias, welcome. Very glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Matthias, usually we begin by inviting our guest to tell their story. And that is to say, how is it that they came to be who they are, uh, to tell their faith story, to bring us on board into mm-hmm. their life and situate us right now? Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I, you know, I grew up in about as Christian as a home as you can get. <laughs> like my, my parents. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> my, my, my parents, uh, they, they converted to Christianity a little bit later in their lives, although, although they grew up in Christian adjacent spaces their, their whole lives. And, but they kind of like were like sold out. And so they, they went and, and started working at a, at a Christian camp in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, uh, year-round uh, camp up there, and that's what I was born into. Uh, so, Whereabouts in Wisconsin? I graduated from high school outside of Milwaukee, but you're talking oh, no about way. up north. Yeah, I'm talking about up north. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so north of Wausau, if you if you know where okay, Wausau is. Right? Yeah, deep, I sure do. I sure deep do. in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So okay. <laughs> that's how I was formed, and and super evangelical, uh, and. I would say almost like borderline fundamentalist is, is, mm. is kind of how I at least frame it now. And, and I think the thing that kept my parents from being fundamentalist, even though we were in those spaces was they had a really huge emphasis on grace. 
and I, I would uh, say kind of a theology of grace. And so while, you know, I, I was homeschooled uh, for, for religious reasons, like I was taught, you know, seven day creationism and like all of these kind of more fundamentalist <laughs> ways of looking mm-hmm. at the world, I did grow up with, a, with an emphasis on grace. Uh, and so about 10, 11 years old, I started realizing that I was attracted to men uh, instead of women. And that kind of threw things for a loop. Uh, and, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know what, to, what to do with that, uh, other than somehow knowing that it was deeply wrong, uh, and that there was something deeply wrong with me. And I, I mean, I, I remember somehow knowing or having suspicions that this thing that I was dealing with was called homosexuality. And, and I remember like I, I had a, a a Bible called, it was called the extreme teen Bible (laughs) at the, at the the beginning of that Bible, there's like a, like the Bible's answers to all these questions. And, and one of the questions in the front was like, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And, and I remember flipping to uh, Leviticus because that was the, the verses that were listed. Lucky you. Right. I know. Yeah. And at 11 (laughs) years old reading, like, this was in secret. I was like, clutching my Bible in secret <laughs> reading like mm. that, that um, at least how I read it, that I would be stoned uh, if anyone yes. found out and mm, put to yes. death. And yes. that terrified me. So I had this deep secret that was kind of between me and God. And I would go to bed at night, just begging God, like, please make me normal. Mm. Uh, I just want to be normal. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go be a missionary <laughs> if you make me normal. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, he didn't make me normal, whatever that means. <laughs> right. um, and yeah, so I eventually, I mean, kind of, and we can dig into specifics there if, if, if we want to, but um like eventually I came out to my parents when I was 15. They responded, I think, as well as they could. Uh, they, they didn't kick me out of the house or anything like that, thankfully. Were they I, surprised? I don't know. They shouldn't have been. Uh, if they, <laughs> like, I, I look back and I'm like, I mean, they should have picked up on the signs, but I, I think they were a little bit because they were so deeply entrenched in this world of here's what's right. Here's what's wrong that I don't even think they considered that I might be gay. Um, Did it, did it come out as concern because maybe they knew what this meant for you in their community as well? No. Were they aware enough? I mean, they were aware enough. I, 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 I don't think they, they, I mean, they might have been, but it, it more was a stance of, this is not okay. Like we love mm. you, but this is not okay. And we're going to figure out what to do about it. So, so it wasn't mm. like a, we love you so much, but this will be really hard for you. It was like a, we're going to fix this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Was this part of a denomination? Were they part of a denomination or was it as independent? It was, yeah. Non, non-denominational. Yeah. Small, 
small non-denominational church. We, we moved to Iowa in the midst of of all of that, and so we were we were in Iowa at that point at a at a small church, um, with a cornfield in the back. So I mean, it was <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So how so how did this track for you then? Well, I bought into it one hundred percent. Like I, I, cause I didn't know any different and I didn't know there were mm. no examples of any other option out there. So, I mean, that was at the time when like focus on the family had their big ex gay quote unquote ministry, uh, Exodus international was in the height, which was another massive ex gay ministry. And I use that term very like, it's not a ministry <laughs> by the way, um, just par- parent parenthetically, some years ago, I had the former, I don't know if he was the president, but he was a very highly placed individual in Exodus. Mm. And he was a public face for Exodus and often appeared on talk shows and so on, that kind of thing. But when he finally showed up at our church, he had, as he told his story to me, he said, you know, Steve, one day I woke up and I realized I was no less gay than I'd ever been. Mm, right. And so he had to leave, but so I'm familiar with yeah. Exodus. Okay, yeah, it, I mean, they did a lot of damage, uh, but that was—I mean, those were the the waters that I was swimming in, and my my parents were swimming in. Like that was; those were the resources they were given, and so I thought I would just pray enough or do enough whatever that eventually God would make me straight. And I would move on and live a happy, normal life. Uh, and mm. it wasn't until I got to undergrad and I, I went to a small Christian college in Arkansas uh, and went to the counseling clinic at this school and literally asked for conversion therapy I, on my intake form. I said, I struggle mm. with same-sex attraction I don't want it anymore. And I heard counseling can help me change. And I walked into mm. the office and one of the first things this therapist said to me, which I, I, I consider this to be the grace of God. Like he, he said, sexual orientation doesn't work like that. Uh, he's like, it, it doesn't change. So he said, the, if you want to work with me, the work that we'll do together is not, how do we change this? but how do you live as a faithful Christ follower with this in tow? That was Mm. the first time anyone had said to me anything like that, that it might actually be part of who I am. It might not change. And, And I remember sitting there thinking like, that actually feels true, like in my bones. It wasn't the news I wanted to hear, but it felt so true. And, and I remember walking out of the office that day and, and feeling this just massive weight off my shoulders. Like m- maybe I don't have to change. M- maybe I'm okay. Uh, and yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was massive. That was massive. Um, I was still in deep within evangelical I, I theology. I can only imagine. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Was the therapist's perspective that, you will be gay, but you shouldn't act gay or mm-hmm. you need to live. You need to 
What was the journey of, of that therapist? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with that therapist, it, it was a be celibate. Like that was his perspective was you, yes. yeah. it's not going to mm-hmm. change, right. but you right. can choose how you express it. And, and I mean, I certainly don't buy into that now. And I think that's very harmful, but at that point in where I was at, like that felt like liberation. <laughs> <laughs> like it was oh, so like yeah. oh i cannot i can surely understand it yeah yeah it yeah. was it was huge so so what was the what was the process that i mean i feel like i i grew up in conservative evangelical christianity to some degree or or another and i think everybody that i know that is in a current is in more of a, a more progressive way of thinking about faith. Now they all came to like some crossroads or some like big event or some sort of trauma that caused them to like just shed that at some point. Can you kind of talk us through how did you get to where you're at now and your understanding now? Sure. M- mine was more gradual. Uh, and, and it, it started coming to a head when I was listening to teaching around celibacy and around like, this is your calling in life. And, and as I looked at scripture, you know, I, I thought like all these verses about celibacy, it seemed pretty clear to me that like it was a calling and also a commitment, right? Like you choose mm-hmm. into it and, and it's this massive commitment. And I, I sat there at like 19 years old and, and thought to myself, like, this feels like a really big decision to be making at 19, <laughs> Because I don't particularly feel called to it, right? I like, say. <laughs> and and I also thought, like, if I'm going to choose this, I need to know what other people are saying. Because at that point, I had started to hear rumors about other people who claimed to be gay and Christian. Jennifer Knapp had just come out, um, which was just a massive thing in the evangelical world and and left her music career behind or Mm. evolved it or whatever. And, and so that was kind of a turning point. It was like, I'm going to intentionally look out and see what else is out there. Who else is talking about this? And and that was my first brush with a more liberative Mm. theology. And I mean, it was years of reading and processing and trying to bring my parents along with me and realizing that they wouldn't come and um, eventually going and getting a master's degree in theology. And like all of that played into where I am now. Uh, it, it was quite the process. Uh, it, there was no like. Would you, so you're still part, you're still part of church, broadly mm-hmm. speaking. Speaking, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you a member of a church somewhere now? Yeah, it depends on how specific you want to get with a member. Um, I am not formally a member of the church that I currently <laughs> attend. I don't need to um, get that specific. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never know when people ask, but I do go to a church and would consider it my, I my guess home my, church. I guess what I would say is you didn't leave Christianity. No, I didn't. Or did you? No. Or how would you how would you speak of that? For some reason, and it and it feels inexplicable to me in some ways because 
I feel like I've had many reasons to leave Christianity, but, but for some reason, I have always had this deep sense that God is with me. And it's been kind of this through line or this thread that I haven't been able to let go of no matter how hard I've, I've wanted to at times. Um, can't quite shake it. And so, so my, the way I think about God has, I mean, evolved significantly, but I would absolutely consider myself a Christian, uh, and, and part of this larger world of Christianity. Yeah. Um, so Matthias, I was, uh, impressed by your transparency in the book that you wrote Mm -hmm. and, uh, by the courage that clearly is, was necessary for you to write it, um, and how helpful it probably is Mm. for many people who are struggling to make sense of sex in (laughs) the, in this millennium at this particular moment. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I commend you for that. And I'm glad that, uh, books like this are available and that your work is available and that you personally are as available as you, as you present yourself in mm. this, in this book. Mm. I, I, I'm kind of interested in, in your take on the state of Christianity at this moment in time in our nation. And um, I mean, you can come at the, this question that I'm implying here from the point of view of, of, uh, the sexual and sexuality perspective, although it's also broader than that. For instance, you you spent some time uh, in your book. You spent a, there was a chapter on how is the Bible true, for instance, mm-hmm. and that has ramifications that are that are broader than sexuality. But I'm kind of I'm kind of intrigued by your take on the state of Christianity at this moment. Yeah, I mean, I I think I would want to start with that by saying, like, in in no ways do I know, like, like capital K kind of (laughs) know what the state is. I can I can give my (laughs) instinct and and my instinct is that depending on the what parts we're talking about we're in some pretty big trouble <laughs> and some pretty, yeah, pretty choppy waters. Um, and, and I, I think I mean, I, I've been fascinated by the kind of movements and flows that led towards our, our last president being elected and have just been kind of devouring the books being written about that right now and, and the ties of white supremacy and patriarchy and, and all of these different things that kind of got roped into a conservative Christianity that I I think we see playing out in so many different arenas. And, and so I, I think we're seeing a massive separation 
and, and I'm almost a revealing of mm. where people actually stand uh, and, and what's actually in people's hearts. Uh, it's, and, and it's, it's coming to light. My, my mom would always say growing up, like it will always come to light. Like whatever is happening in the dark will always <laughs> come to light. And, you know, she would use it when she thought we yeah. were lying, but like, <laughs> but I, I think that's true. And I think <laughs> we're seeing that happen right now. It, it's, it's coming into the light. Yeah. You saw perhaps that Beth Moore has mm-hmm, left the Southern Baptists as of today. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. I did see that, yeah. Um, our listeners probably don't know Beth Moore. Mm. And the other thing I would say lucky, about our listeners lucky. is that they're not as um, <laughs> they're, not, they're not as um, familiar with um, the evangelical reality in the United mm-hmm. States. You know, Brandon has brought a lot of perspective on that to us out of his experience. Um, but it's very, been very clear to me that the, the media has presented Christianity largely through the lens of the evangelical megachurch, particularly. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, it, within the last, how many years? 10 years? More? Uh, and the kind of religious expression that we are advancing and that you are discussing and that you are discovering and sharing has been less visible. Right. Um, so to your, to your point that there's been a great reveal, <clears throat> it's curious how that's happened as a result of our political moment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think uh, you know talking about the the just that exposure to evangelicalism is you know I've told Steve this several times since working at the church and one of the reasons I was so interested in your book was growing up I thought that the main thing in Christianity was keeping us from having sex like that was the key to whether you were a good Christian or not was whether you were able to abstain until marriage like that was the whole that was the whole thing or at least that's like through <clears throat> some youth group experiences that's a huge part of what they talk about all the time you know mm-hmm. and i was always told that in evangelicalism that the moment that you open the door to really just to sex in general that your life is going to fall apart you're going to be incapable of developing any morals around sex there's it's impossible apart from this line of thinking to form a sexual ethic and I think even even since I've kind of gone through my own deconstruction and reconstruction, I still have so much baggage around sex because I don't feel like most of us who came out of that environment ever were given any tools to right. develop a true, healthy sexual ethic. You know what I'm saying? And so I thought maybe you could talk a little mm-hmm. bit about your book and your journey in that way. Like how, how do we without shedding purity culture, like how do we form a sexual ethic? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's 
such a beautiful question. But I think before we even ask the question of how do we develop a new sexual ethic, we, we need to work with our shame first, uh, at least in my opinion, because mm. so many of us who have come from this more repressive background, certainly evangelical Christianity, but, but we could argue U.S. culture as a whole <laughs> is a pretty repressively sexual culture. Mm, uh, sure, I agree with that. And and so a lot of us have sexual shame. And 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 I think before we can imagine what a more healthy expression of sexuality looks like, we actually have to work with what's keeping us from that to begin with. And for a lot of us, that's shame. It can be many other things as mm. well. Um, and and so I mean this book really was birthed out of in grad school and then by becoming a therapist and, and seeing and working with clients, but also in this, these queer spaces that I run in seeing so much shame and so much confusion about how, mm. how do we be sexual beings and, and seeing people also seeing myself kind of trapped in this like, I feel awful. I feel like I'm a horrible person for being a sexual being. Um, and and working with that really was my goal of the book. And and I mean, since you guys have read it, you'll you'll know I, I don't prescribe a sexual ethic in the book. I kind yeah. of give an outline to places we might want to navigate in order to arrive at a values-based sexual ethic. Um, but but that that conversation of what's a progressive sexual ethic, I think is a little bit further down the line. <laughs> and, and first we have to work with mm. what we're actually in, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I was struck at uh, one point, um, you were talking about the theology of, in this section called the vi fiery canyon of sexuality. <laughs> and, uh, the sharing of the gospel usually followed a simple trajectory. You're a terrible person and nothing you can ever do will change that. But that's okay because Jesus was brutally murdered, but then he came back to life. So now all you need to do is to admit that you're an unlovable piece of dirt and accept Jesus into your heart by praying a three sentence prayer. Mm -hmm. um, Amen. <laughs> is that what you grew up with, Brandon? Do you recognize that? I mean, my my parents never gave me that or put that on me, but a lot of the spaces that I've been in, like that is the gospel. I mean, it's a tongue-in-cheek way of saying it, but that is exactly what every evangelical megachurch in this country preaches. I mean, that that essentially that is the theology of what of substitutionary atonement. Right. And how that works. Yeah. Right. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that I didn't grow up with that expressly. Um, but I would agree with you, Matthias, that um, there's a general mm, overarching culture of shame that's attached to sexuality. Mm -hmm. And uh, even without that particular theology. Right. Uh, or that express, that express kind of nasty theology, mm -hmm. I'll call it. Um, there's still an overarching umbrella of shame that's attached to growing up as a sexual being in our right. culture and has been. 
Now we're from different generations. And so my experience is somewhat different from yours, but, but I would agree with you in the, your, in your generic statement Mm -hmm. that shame imbues sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I I mean, that was one of the first papers that Freud ever wrote (laughs) way back at the beginning of like the, arguable birth of, yeah. of psychology is sex and shame. It's, it's in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think the theology is telling you that anything that is in you and anything that feels natural to you is evil and depraved. Hmm. You know what I mean? So you seeking pleasure of any kind is, is evil and you need to run from it. And I can't tell you the number of couples that got married at our Christian college who are now either divorced or have just horror stories of their their sex life because it's that whole faucet mentality where the entire time growing up all the way into like adulthood, you're taught like every time you think about sex, you got to turn the faucet off. Mm-hmm. You got to stop that water from coming out. You got to plug the hole. You got to do it. But then the moment you get married, you got to fling the faucet on all the way. Actually, just break the faucet off and the water can just go everywhere. And it's impossible to make Mm -hmm. that switch. And most people have so much, by the time they get to that point, they have so much shame, so much guilt around normal baseline sexual feelings and desires that they can't make that switch. And that's been, have you seen that in any of your clinical work? (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 and the, the trauma from that, like, like it, it, not only is there underlying Mm. trauma from being raised with this theology, but it's a really traumatic experience to then be expected to flip that switch back like instantly on and find a, it doesn't work. Or B, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> or C, one of you flips it on, and and the and another person in the relationship doesn't actually want it. And, and then we're, I mean, we're in the realm of rape. Like, and and I mean that that happens. I, I have so many clients who did everything, quote unquote, right and by the book, and and yet wound up in i mean devastating situations because they didn't know that they could say no um or that they could have conversations about what's okay and what's not okay um it it, it, it's devastating you know one of the things that occurred to me as i was reading your reading the book and as a kind of a take, as a jumping off point of what I just referenced about how we're all depraved. Mm. Um, That, that theology comes out of the doctrine of original sin, basically, that humans are just simply born sinful. But, but as you, you don't say this, but you kind of imply it later on in the book when we talk, when you talk about the story of creation, Rather than the the very first story <clears throat> in the Bible isn't the story of original sin. 
its original blessing. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the church latched on to original sin as the fulcrum of the Christian faith, as opposed to the blessing, which is, in my book, the, the fulcrum of Christian tradition, mm-hmm. actually, of our tradition, mm-hmm. um, that we are good. We've been made good. God called us good, created humanity good. Right. Um, you know, the church ended up dealing with original sin and calling us bad and mm-hmm. bad. Anyway, I, I, that occurred to me as I was reading reading your book, and you kind of get to that point later on as right. you talk about creation and the creation narratives mm-hmm. of humanity. Well, I mean, what's fascinating in that narrative to me is, I mean, I also grew up with this theology that like sin cuts us off from God. So, so when we sin, God mm-hmm. doesn't want anything to do with us, and I mean, in that garden story, like Adam and Eve hide, which is a shame response. (laughs) They hide themselves from God (laughs) and God goes and looks for them. (laughs) I mean, we see this relational movement and I argue in the book, like the way we work with our shame is through relationship. And we see God in that first story, extending relationship and working with their shame right in that moment. Very yes. different from original sin. What should the church be teaching, saying about sex and sexuality at this moment? Yeah. You know, I, I think a place to start would be advocating for and, and working around like comprehensive sex education. I, I don't know that it's necessarily the church's job to be the place where that's taught, but as a baseline <laughs> to allow space for that uh, and, and actually allow people to explore and talk about, you know, what's actually happening with our bodies. <laughs> um, and, and, and that as a baseline, there are so few churches where those conversations are even being had. Uh, I mean, sex is a scary thing to talk about. I, I get it. Um, but if we could even start with conversations about, about sex, about sex education, about here's, What's going to happen for you when you hit, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old? Or here's what some of your complications might be when you get into a relationship. Um, I think that would be a very good place to start. Um, and of course, I have many other ideas, but. <laughs> well, I think it's so interesting to me. Because something that I was always told in evangelicalism that is true is that if we don't speak to it, somebody will fill that void and they will, they will teach you, they'll teach your child, they'll teach whatever about sex. And I think if churches like ours and people who want to have a more forward thinking look at sex, if we don't have these conversations, evangelical churches will have these conversations you know, they will be out there preaching these things, teaching these things. And if there isn't an alternative voice painting a picture um, that, that thankfully like your book is, it, it will it will become prevalent. I mean, like you said, evangelicalism has an end and really just the church in general affects culture, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think us speaking into that void is really important. You know, I, <clears throat> I have the perspective of time on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so struck by how a book like yours would was not available, was not written 20 years ago. Uh, current conditions are such that uh, persons like yourself are finding their voice, and especially mm-hmm. even within the Christian church, mm-hmm. within the Christian tradition, are finding their voices and and now having this conversation. That's a that's a major thing. It it's it's not the same thing, but I'm I'm also struck by the fact that I never thought. That the that the acceptance of gay marriage would happen as soon as it did. Mm-hmm. It was as though there was a tsunami that happened culturally within a very short time frame. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by the fact that there's an, a there's a kind of a cultural awakening going on around all of these matters, mm-hmm. um, and and. Uh, and the church has been an observer, or at best an observer of these matters, as opposed to a catalyst, or at worst as a drag. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know if I have a question embedded within this so much as an observation mm-hmm. that um, with the vantage point of time, I'm struck by there is a very creative moment right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a necessary uh, mm, awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to a question like this, Matthias, which is, what does Christianity have to say or witness to in, in the current conditions? Because that's a phrase you use about truth, that, that we are that Jesus was a witness to the truth as opposed to a proclaimer of truth per se. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm rather taken with that and agree with your, your metaphor there, but what, what does Christianity have to say or witness to in current conditions? Yeah. um, So, I mean, my mind goes a couple places with that. I, I think, I mean, that, that, that witness metaphor analogy that i that i use in that chapter i mean i i think i use the example of of someone going to like a a workout class and um and then walking out and and i bump into that person on the road and i i can i witness their sweat i witness the effects of that class on them and and i can see what what happened um i I think the church can be i mean if we choose to (laughs) can be that kind of evidence of, of of what is happening we can see through the lens of the church what is going on in our world um but we can also bring in the spirit we can bring in this this larger vision of humanity and wisdom uh and 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 uh, so th- there's I'm, I'm stumbling here because i'm just putting thoughts together but 
there's almost a mirroring um, that that the church can can be, but like imaginatively so. So we look into a reflection and and see what we are, but also what we can be. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense. <laughs> well, Matthias, I hear that, but give me some something more concrete. What is the sure. Christian church? What, what? How should we witness? Yeah. Yeah. How should we witness to the truth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When when I was searching for a church here in Seattle, um, it was so important to me that mm-hmm. that the church actually like like if i say i'm a person who is about justice so this this would be a big category for me is, is justice right. then then i said i i want to find a church where there are you know women in leadership <laughs> and not just white women in leadership but um bipoc folks uh and and that then they were not just in leadership but that that was actually reflected in the congregation Right, so that it's not an all-white congregation with a couple mm-hmm. BIPOC pastors, uh, and you know we're all on our happy way. Like in in, eventually I found a church like that, but they're rare. <laughs> and and I would say like if we want to be a church that is actually pursuing justice, we need to mobilize in such ways that. It shows up in our body. Hmm. Who is in the pews? Who is up on stage? What are we doing uh, around, yes, absolutely, like queerness, but also around racism, around uh, underhomed people, like, like all of these different areas. What are we doing? Not just what we're preaching. Um, and it's, it's easy to say that. It, it's really hard. I mean, there are so many progressive churches in Seattle. There are so few that are not like all white congregations. <laughs> so there's a disconnect there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because I, I hear what you're saying and I totally, um, I totally feel where you're coming from because people will ask me like, what kind of congregation do we need to be? to, you know, attract or, or, you know, be an open table for people who have come out of this environment of like evangelicalism, or even just to express to people who are in current conditions, we are a safe place to come and be a part of a faith community. And it's not like you listed like a hundred, you know, things that are going on, but they're all these huge topics that, if a church is speaking on those topics, racism, LGBTQIA issues, um, issues about the patriarchy, issues about uh, you know social justice, um, civil rights, it lets me know from moment one if that's visible, like on your website, if that's visible in the programs that you have, if that's visible in the conversations that you're having around uh, that church body, it lets me know that this is a safe place where I can come and be a part of this community. And now like it would be impossible 
it, it was impossible for a long time for me to think like, where is a church where I'm just going to know that I'm not going to walk into an environment where after months of being there, I'm going to find out that there's some sort of like troublesome theology or that this is just, you know, the same, you know, regressive theology packaged in skinny jeans and a flannel. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it's just so hard because it's so hard to describe how the church should be acting because there aren't that many churches out there that are even touching on these subjects. Yeah, right, right. I don't know quite how to ask this question, Matthias, but I, it's the the word pops up in your in your book every now and then. Hookup culture. Hmm. What does what does faithful Christianity? How does faithful Christianity? Um, what do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with that phrase? What do we do with that context? What do we do with a cultural moment? Can you kind of shed some wisdom on that for us? Yeah, I can. I can try. And and you know, even since writing this book, I, I've become privy to more conversations that are happening about around whether hookup culture even exists. So I, I used that term in the book because it's what we called it. But since since then, a lot of right. people are even right. asking right. that that question. I, but I, I would take it from a slightly different perspective, though, of, of not whether it's a thing or not, um, but would, would want to engage this question of what does it look like to have a maybe healthier or faithful sexuality, depending on how we want to define that, again, from this perspective of shame. So are we having casual sexual encounters as a way to avoid our shame? Are we doing it to avoid pain? Are we doing it for a dopamine hit? Like, I mean, there's so many reasons we can have sex. Um, and I think asking those questions uh, in, in a way that that isn't necessarily going to say like, well, if you are having sex to avoid something, then you shouldn't be doing that. Like, that, that's not what I mean. Um, but, but asking those questions of what's actually going on a little bit deeper, what's leading to these choices and, and how can we engage with that in a way that's actually going to heal? Um, and, and I think that will then lead to maybe not always, <laughs> maybe different sexual choices or more intentionality around the choices that we are making. And that leads me to ask you to say something about towards at some point later in the book, you quote someone as saying, there is no such thing as casual sex. Yeah. Say a word about that, because I think that's relevant to relevant to the conversation. Sure. Yeah. So I, I was quoting Helen Fisher there and in, she at the time of writing right, right. was the the I think the senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, uh, and she comes. Mm. This was so interesting to me. She comes from an entirely non-religious background and really wants nothing to do with with religion. And so for her to say 
there is no such thing as casual sex. Like my youth pastor said that all the time (laughs) for her to say it, it carried a little bit of a different (laughs) way. Right. Like, (laughs) right, right, right. Right. And and she's referring to what happens neurobiologically when we're in a sexual encounter. Right. Uh, That's the realm that she's speaking to. And, and when she says that she is saying, and she goes on later to say, Whenever we have a sexual encounter, hormones of connection fire. They do. We can't stop that from happening. And 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 she in that interview, it was an interview with Krista Tippett on uh, on her show on Being. Uh, uh, yes. She goes on to talk about these hormones of connection. They build attachment. And, and so she's not saying it is inevitable that you will be attached when you have sex. She's not saying that. She is saying be really careful <laughs> about who you're having sex with because you might find out that you become attached to that person, right? And there are ways that we, yes. I mean, we can work and mitigate with that. And, and I tried to kind of toe that line and give some suggestions in the book. But there is a neurobiological reality that these chemicals fire when we have sexual encounters and we need to be aware of that. Yeah. I find it really empowering actually to know like this is what's happening. Uh, Cause then we can, we can work with it instead of be ignorant of it. Mm. We're going to be coming up shortly on an hour. Um, wondering if there are things that are on your mind that, you would like to say, or Brad, um, Brandon, do you have a, a, another thought or a question or the, what's, what's, uh, on your, on your mind here? Yeah, I would just say, I mean, one of the, this is kind of a, an interesting thought process. I was a youth pastor for years in a former life. Um, and I think like all of the messaging for my youth group you know, it came up all the time was this was sex, like having these conversations <laughs> about sex all the time. Mm-hmm. And I I was talking to Nicole, who's our children and families person at Christ Church. And I was just like, how do you talk to young adolescent kids about sex in this day and age? And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or like where would be a good place to start having that conversation. Um, and I think a bigger part of that is like you know, I grew up and was in like coming of age, like even in college and stuff in an environment where it was almost taboo to talk about sex at all. And you wanted to not talk about it because then you would think about it. You're not supposed to be thinking about it. (laughs) So like, where do you think, what is a healthy way of doing that um, for, you know, young kids or just people in general, like more conversation about sex in general, is that the happy medium? Like, I don't know. What, what do you think? What does that bring up for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on kids and teens and this, in this conversation, I, I, I do have some ideas and then I'll point you towards a resource towards someone who is an expert on this. Um, and her, her name is, is Tina Shermer Sellers, Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. Uh, she actually, she wrote the forewords for mm-hmm. my book. Um, she's a sex therapist mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. worked at Seattle Pacific university for a very long time and an expert in Christianity and sexuality. She has this concept of 
10,000 tiny conversations. And she uses this when speaking to parents. Uh, but I, I think it could also work maybe modified in a church setting of what does it look like to have a like 10,000 tiny conversations instead of several bigger conversations or one big conversation? What does it look like <laughs> to actually incorporate this into just the way we talk and, and, you know, realizing kids are naturally curious. And so when a kid is curious mm. about something, how do we have a one minute, a 30 second conversation about with them about their curiosity instead of turning it into a big thing? That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. But that requires the adults, that requires the adults to be comfortable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and integrated with their own experience and thoughts right. about this. It's, right. that's a, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Yeah, Church is. has a long way to go, doesn't it? I mean, we have, we've, we've ignored, we've either ignored this topic or, or abused this topic mm -hmm. for so long yes. that it's a very hard shift to to get it into a, a kind of normal discourse, normal mm -hmm. transparent discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm so grateful. There are places like y'all <laughs> who are having these conversations. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and Matthias, maybe there will be an opportunity for us to invite you back to Christ Church in some form. I would like to be able to make that happen at some point. Would you be open for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would I would love to. So thank you very much for your time tonight. And I think uh, our listeners will be challenged to think fresh thoughts about mm -hmm. um, these matters. And um, very glad that you've been able to be with us. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.